Okay, so I met Dr. Moore uh, at, uh, we're, we're, you can call him Russell. Um, I'll call him Dr. Moore right now, and then I'll probably refer to him as Russ because I'm partial to that name. Um, but I met uh, Dr. Moore through an invitation from Randall Goodgame, who has a, uh, um, a children's ministry called Slugs and Bugs, and uh, which is a uh, uh, kids and con- uh, is songs and, and scripture memorization for kids. And he was doing a little video that he wanted to have um, some pastors at, and it was called uh, what was it called? It was called a an Anglican, a Baptist, and a Presbyterian walk into a monkey bar. Yeah, and so the three of us. It was it was. Uh, Russell and myself and Father Thomas McKenzie, um, who passed away this past fall in a, in a car accident. Um, but it was the three of us sitting down with, with Randall in a kindergarten classroom where the, the tables were really, really low and our knees were kind of up on our chins and tennis balls on the legs of the chairs. And um, it, was, it, was a, it was a really fun time. But that's, that's where our friendship started. And since then, we've spent time together just as, you know, because Nashville is a beautiful small town. Um, but one of the things that I've really enjoyed about, uh, about Dr. Moore is um, the way his mind works and the way he is able to communicate um, what, is, what has been to me in, on a number of occasions uh, great clarity on, on complex things. And uh, one of the things that he is asked to speak on often is the thing that I've asked him to speak about this evening, and that is the intersection of faith and politics. And what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ uh, and in, in, a, in a world where, where, um, where politics are very much in play, partisanship is very much in play. Um, and because I think about this as a pastor, uh, one of the things I want for our congregation is I want a uh, diversity of political leanings uh, within this particular congregation, uh, because if that exists in this congregation, one of the things that tells me is that we're not tribalists as a church. Um, and so if we can be a church that can disagree on things that are not essential for salvation, uh, if we can disagree on things that um, that have to do with where we come from and 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 um, how we see the world, but we can do that as people who are uh, first and foremost wanting to know what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully, then our church can be a place uh, that has people who are on a continuum uh, on the political spectrum uh, and love each other well in that process. And I feel like the deck is stacked against us uh, culturally right now when the, the loudest voice is talking about um, politics, particularly when it comes to politics and faith, are voices that are demanding that we take aside, plant our feet, and regard those who are not on our side as the enemy. Uh, and that's not the way of Christ. And so... Um, so I'm really looking forward to what we get to hear uh, from Dr. Moore this evening and what we get to ask him as well. And so with all that said, I'm going to hand it over to you, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Russell Moore. All right. It is a joy to be with you here. I have such uh, affection and admiration for your pastor, and it's great to see this new, uh, relatively new, I guess, uh, space that you all are in now. I'd like for us to start tonight by looking at a passage of scripture in 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. And I'd like for us to start reading with verse 12 and then read on down through verse 19. 
2 Kings 20, 12 through 19. The scripture says this. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. And there was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they have come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. So Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? It's a word of the Lord. Uh, Someone asked me uh, not long ago about how to understand the relationship right now between religion in the United States of America, particularly evangelical Christian religion in the United States of America, and politics. And the best image I could come up with is Mr. Rogers with a blowtorch. And that was probably because I had just uh, read a series of the last interviews that Fred Rogers had, had ever given. And in one of them, the interviewer said, have you, um, you know, all these people who do Mr. Rogers impressions and do parodies on television, do you mind that? And he said, no, except for one time. He said there was a guy on a local station somewhere, and every afternoon he would come out in the sweater and the sneakers, and he would have his uh, Mr. Rogers voice on, and he would say, now children, take your mother's hairspray and your daddy's cigarette lighter and press the buttons and you'll have a blowtorch. And the real Fred Rogers said, well, he thought that that was funny, and, but he pressed them to put a stop to that. Now, I'm going to see why. It's not, not just because somebody was teaching children to be arsonists, which would be bad enough, but because... They were teaching them to be arsonists under the guise of the trust that had been earned by Fred Rogers. And so what we're looking at right now all over the world, and we have seen for uh, at least 5,000 years, is the way that politics will often search out and find religion as a way to prop up its own authority for for various reasons, as we'll talk about in a a few minutes. And what inevitably happens when that starts to take place is you end up with a confusion of the gospel, you end up with an inflation of politics, and you end up with a disillusioned and cynical uh, group of people. So when someone would say to me, well, what 
what does political idolatry do to the gospel? My response would be nothing. Does, does nothing to the gospel. What you mean by the gospel is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That stands. But if what you mean by that is the credibility and the witness of the church, that's a different question. And that's a question about the blowtorch. It's a question about what is coming with certain authority and certain uh, cover. So you can see going all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar, this union between political passion and zeal and religious uh, passion and zeal can be useful. Caesar did that with the imperial uh, gods. You can worship Caesar in order to worship the gods of your fathers, and those two things are conflated. You can see it right now. Uh, the, The Chinese Communist Party, for instance, will take Confucianism very traditional in in Chinese society, and try to merge itself with it. Islam has done this very well. There are white identity uh, movements, sort of blood and soil uh, movements all over Europe uh, that are doing this right now. There's a a researcher who will go around to some of these um, sort of uh, white nationalist, white identity protesters in France or in the Netherlands or Germany, And often they will be standing there with a cross or maybe in France a statue of Joan of Arc, some other piece of religious symbolism. And when you come and start talking to them, what you find out is these people are actually atheists. Uh, And what they mean by Christianity is being French, being German, being Dutch, having this identity as a cultural group of people that's defined politically. Now, the reason that that's important right now is because if you, if you look around American society, one of the things that we're going to see is that there is exhaustion. There's exhaustion for a number of reasons. I mean, uh, we, we have been through... Uh, a a really uh, frightful couple of years. But one of the other reasons why there's exhaustion is that American society right now seems to be politics all the way down. And people have often started with the idea when this eventually calms down and we can all move on past it, won't that be great? Problem is, that magical time period where that's supposed to happen keeps getting pushed out further and further and further down the line, and right now, there's no end in sight. So why is that? Well, one of the reasons for that is a researcher by the name of Christopher Freeman has talked about the co-opting of identity by politics. So what's happening in American society right now is that politics actually isn't just about here are the things that I think are important, here are the the ways that we can work together as a society to get those things, here are the debates that we are having about how to get there. That's very rarely uh, the case. Instead, there is an all-encompassing identity around one's uh, political self 
that is mostly defined not by the love of one's own tribe, but by the hatred of whatever is the out tribe and the the out party. And one of the reasons for that is because it is really useful to present every moment as an existential threat and every disagreement as being an apocalypse. That's very useful. Uh, I, when I started working in a public policy role, I said to a group of friends of mine, if you ever hear me say, this is the most important election in our lifetimes, come and get the keys, because I have been hearing that all the way back to where I could remember understanding what someone said. And I don't remember a single time when anyone said, you know, every election's important, but that one four years ago was more important than this one. Or that one 12 years ago was actually much more important than this one. Whoever says that, it's always the most important uh, moment because everything is a potential catastrophe or everything is a potential utopia. Why is that? Because that is the way that people can be engaged quickly and more importantly, that is the way that one can raise money quickly. Uh, Several years ago, I had a friend who would always say, uh, and he's in the political space, crazy doesn't win. And I will often call him and say, remember when you said crazy doesn't win? Uh, Crazy wins a lot, but crazy also raises a lot of money. Nuance does not. Uh, Saying, the people who disagree with me on this issue, they're wrong but they're motivated in the right way, they just see this differently, is not going to motivate people to send you a check. Uh, Instead, what motivates people to send you a check is we are besieged, we are under threat, they are evil, and there's a merging then of your identity with the political movement in the way that people have traditionally done with, say, their sports teams or their hometowns, except with a lot more at stake. Now, the reason that that's important is because that kind of identity is not just bad for democracy. It's bad for people. And so what ends up happening is a kind of exhaustion from constantly protecting one's identity from threats and from a kind of enthusiasm that ultimately leads to disillusionment and cynicism. Uh, In the same way, there are places that were called burned-over districts where there were really intense and emotional revivals that would take place that ultimately led uh, people who were just burned over They no longer even recognized uh, these things that were taking place, the enthusiasms that were taking place. Same thing happens with politics and with political disagreements. Sometimes I'll have pastors who will call, uh, often, maybe every day, pastors who will call and who will say, when I look at the Facebook pages of my people, 
I want to quit because I wonder what have I been doing uh, for all these years with the way that they speak to one another and the sorts of things that go on. And usually that pastor will say, what can I do to fix this? And usually what I'll say is, you can't. Because what you're seeing right now is kind of like starlight. You're seeing the after effects of something that took place a long, long time ago. And actually what it is that you're working on right now is not to be able to address what's being debated on Facebook right now. It's to address what's going to be debated in the metaverse or wherever 10 years from now. That's what the problem is. Because when you have this sense of of political identity and when you have an American culture that is sorting itself out where very few people live in the same zip code with Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and progressives. Uh, Very few people have, like I did in my family, really, really committed conservative Reagan Republicans and really, really committed liberal FDR Democrats. Almost no one has that because American society is getting sorted out. And so you end up with a situation where you don't have people who have multiple sorts of identities. (laughs) it's, It's very hard to find a conservative, Republican, Prius-driving vegan. (laughs) And it's very hard to find a progressive Democrat with a a gun rack on her truck at Cracker Barrel. Uh, Those things rarely happen in American life right now. So instead you have everything being, being put together into one thing. And then you have the sort of emotional expectations that come with those political identities that ping you back and forth from exuberant triumph, we won, they lost, to a sense of apocalyptic despair. We are about to lose our entire society and everything. That exuberance and that despair are both exhausting Because human beings were not meant to put this much weight on those sorts of identities. When we're thinking about politics, I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind is something that I tend to do with um, people in premarital counseling all the time. Have people come in. One of the things that I will do that drives them crazy is to say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you, without talking to each other, I want you to work on answering this question. If I were going to have an affair, here's probably the way that I would try to hide it, and here are the sorts of questions that you should ask to try to catch me in it. And the reason I ask that is not because anybody can really anticipate what they would do necessarily in that situation. The reason I do it is because of the reaction that it will get, which is to say, 
I would never have an affair on her. I love her. I would never cheat on him. He's, he's just perfect. You know, and what you want to do is to come in and say, if you go into a marriage with this sense of invulnerability, and if you have an expectation upon a marriage that sees it as invulnerable, what you're going to end up with is a marriage that is lost. Because the the simple reality is if you go around and you talk to people who are not married and who are living together, and you say, why? The answer you would expect to get is a low view of marriage. Who needs a piece of paper? That's just an institution. We don't need... You almost never get that answer. Instead, what you get is a super high view of marriage that says, I don't want to go through what my parents went through when they divorced, and so I want to make sure that I am completely sure that this is my soulmate before we're going to get married. And I want to be completely sure that there's not any risk of my being hurt by this. And In reality, what that means is you will never find that place where you're without risk. And if you put the burden upon someone to meet every expectation of your soul, you're going to not only be disappointed, you're going to find yourself at odds with that person. In the same way that a family who puts upon their children the expectations of meeting all of their hopes and dreams will end up crushing the life of that child and will end up being disappointed and cynical themselves. A super high view of politics actually leads to no politics because what you end up happening is theatrical performance. I was um, talking to my kid's school one time and someone said, well, you're, you're working with these people in Washington all the time. Um, isn't it terrible how they can fight with each other and then come out and say, my good friend, the distinguished gentleman from wherever? And I said, actually, that's not the most shocking thing. The most shocking thing is that these people mostly really get along. They really like each other when they're behind closed doors. But you can't do that right now in public because if you're seen with somebody with whom you have disagreements, then whoever your base is, whoever your your supporters are, are going to say, what does that mean? Why are Ted Cruz and Nancy Pelosi standing here uh, talking to one another? They're they're asking about their kids. Uh, They're they're talking about... uh, Easter plans, the the, the sorts of things that normal human beings do, but that's not allowed in a time when politics becomes theatrical and politics becomes performative, which means very little actually happens because many people who are being elected to office are sorting themselves out by those who are willing to do the performative aspect and not to actually come in and do the work. So what you have happening is what uh, one uh, scholar talked about 
as not so much that power corrupts people as that corruptible people seek power, which is to say this scholar talked about his mom who had decided one day she's going to run for school board. She cares about kids, she cares about education, she ran for school board, and she did that for a, you know, 10, 20 years. It was boring. It was completely boring. She came in with her, uh, with her expertise and her love for those kids in education, and she carried out that job. This person said, if she were today looking at the issue of whether or not to run for school board in her town, where every school board uh, meeting ends up with people screaming at each other and security guards having to usher people out of the room, she just wouldn't run. She would just say, well, that's just not for me. So what do you end up with? You end up with the sort of people who like that kind of thing. And that ends up sorting all of that out even more. Now, the reason why this is so important is not so much about what happens to the country or what happens to the political system, but what happens to the witness of the church. And the reason that's important is because one of the most dangerous things to the witness of the church is the suspicion that Christianity is just a means to an end. I went through this as a 15-year-old, almost to the point of suicide, because I was looking around at Bible Belt Christianity and starting to wonder, now wait a minute. We have prophecy chart experts who have come through ever since I can remember really, really confident about supermarket scanners or the mark of the beast. Or Mikhail Gorbachev is the Antichrist. He has that thing on his head. And uh, and we're we're just right at the precipice of everything. Uh, Jesus returns and everything's there. Problem is, nobody ever would come back and say after supermarket scanners became ubiquitous, eh, probably not the mark of the beast. Uh, Nobody ever came back after the Soviet Union collapsed to say, eh, you know, maybe the Antichrist is somebody else. Uh, That never happened. Instead, you would have the same people who made those confident assertions simply making other confident assertions later on. And I would notice in... Uh, the sorts of uh, voter guides that would be handed out in Bible Belt churches that would have the Christian viewpoint and the non-Christian viewpoint, that those things tended to line up exactly with the viewpoints of the favored candidate of uh, whoever was in that church. In the same way, that it just so happened that when favored candidates would come through town, they were the ones who would get up and give their testimony, but it was always about three weeks before election day. You start to see all of those things, and you start to wonder, maybe that's actually what this is about. And one of the things that we have uh, seen taking place in the 
mainline uh, Protestant churches, very politicized, is that if people figure out that the religion is actually about the politics, they can do the politics without giving up a Sunday morning. And it doesn't matter whether those politics are left or right or center or, or anywhere else. If Christianity is a means to an end, then people will perceive that very, very quickly. And they also will perceive this incongruence between what we say and what we do. So that pastor scripture that I read at the beginning, King Hezekiah, problem for him is that when the emissaries from Babylon come, Hezekiah shows them what? Shows them the storehouse of his stuff. He shows them his power. And why? Because that's exactly what Babylon would do. That's exactly what Assyria would do. That's exactly what Egypt would do. That makes very good sense to say to people, look at everything I have, you don't want to mess with me. Problem is, that's not the way that God had called him to act. And so when the message came and said, your own children are going to be carried off to Babylon, the short-term vision that is there for Hezekiah is to say, all right, because it's not going to affect me. The church, especially when it comes to this moment of political idolatry, can do the exact same thing, which is to say, well, what difference does it make if in our congregation we're all on the same page politically and that's actually what gets us excited when we have people who are overhearing this and watching this, including our own children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and those to come, who are asking, is this actually something that is transcendent? One of the things that you will notice about the life of Jesus is the way that he is responding in different ways when he is called into controversies. Sometimes what Jesus does is just to enter that controversy and answer it. Sometimes what Jesus does is to reframe the question. Sometimes what Jesus does is to ask other questions. Sometimes what Jesus does is basically to say, shut up, I'm not answering that. And sometimes Jesus just leaves. Now, why? Because he has a mission that he's carrying out. And even more importantly, for, for these purposes, he's not emotionally driven by those controversies around it. When the question is, do you owe the temple tax? That is a really emotionally charged political question. And Jesus says to Peter, do we owe that? Nah, well, let's pay it anyway so that we don't offend them. I mean, th there is this sense of someone who's able to go before Pilate and say, you don't have any authority over me than, than has been given to you. 
and is not driven emotionally and spiritually by those questions because he sees the bigger picture of his own mission. Church has to do that as well, which means that often the most important things when it comes to political life are not the end results. Politics is politics. What matters is the end result. Who you support, what issues you support, so forth. In terms of the Christian church, that is far less important than how someone gets there. What sorts of ways that person's conscience has been shaped and formed. So if I'm in a city and I have two people who come up and they both serve on the city council. And one of them says to me, you know, James 127 says that we need to care for widows and orphans in their distress. We have a lot of single moms in our community, and they're not able to, to make a living. And so I think we need to raise the minimum wage in order to take care of them. And the next guy says, yeah, but I, I'm worried about that. I don't want to do that. Because James 1.27 says we need to care about widows and orphans in their distress, and I'm afraid that the businesses in our community are going to cut back hours if we raise the minimum wage, and these uh, mothers are going to have to be working two or three jobs. I'm not going to adjudicate between that, because their motives are shaped and formed both in a biblical gospel way where they disagree is over these prudential matters. How do you get there? Now, if someone else walked up and said, who cares about these single mothers? They're just losers and takers. That you would rebuke. And so the, the issue usually, just as it is with sort of personal moral uh, questions, sometimes is really clear. Sometimes there's a time where the church has to say, thus saith the Lord. Uh, if someone who says, you know, in our house we like to sacrifice a goat every once in a while. No. No. Uh, there are other issues, though, where someone's going to come up and, and have a, a question and what you're trying to do is to give them principles that are coming from, from, from Scripture, but you're not deciding the end result. Parents, you have to care about your children and teach them in the way of the Lord. That doesn't settle the question of whether you send them to public school or private school or home school or something else. Uh, and then there are going to be other questions that the church doesn't address at all. Romans 14, uh, you, you leave each person to his or her own conscience. That happens in the personal moral arena, and it also happens in terms of the ways that we live and work together. So what does that mean for people who are Christians who may be called into the political arena? I have a lot of young people who ask that all the time. How do I know whether or not I ought to give my life to public service and politics? And what I usually say is, well, were you the kind of person who in high school was going to run for student government? And were you the kind of person who was at Boys State and Girls State? 
uh, every year. Uh, were you the kind of person who's been tracking uh, political campaigns uh, all of your life? If so, you are not the kind of person who needs to be in politics. <laughs> the kind of person who needs to be in politics, ex- especially at the present time, have to be those people whose identities and emotional lives are not bound up in the office that they hold and who can, win an, who can lose an election and be disappointed but still be able to go on with their lives. If, though, your entire sense of self is built upon whatever office you hold, then you are going to adjust your conscience to keep the office that you hold because the threat of losing that office feels to you like a threat of being destroyed. That's not the kind of person that we need in public life. And what do we need from the church at a political moment uh, like this? I think there are a lot of things but the most important thing is disillusionment. There was, um, during World War II, C.S. Lewis stood up and gave an address at Oxford dealing with the question, why do we even spend time going to class when there's a world war taking place? There may not even be in England uh, at the end of this. And what Lewis came out and said is to say the disillusionment can be a gift because he says if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. The issue there is the illusion and it is better to have that broken as soon as possible, in order to then carry out the life of Christ. That is even more the case when we are existing in a time where politics can give the semblance of life. Because really what gives the semblance of life is the argument. Walker Percy used to talk about, in The Moviegoer, he he wrote about this uh, guy who would go into... Uh, a library, this was in the 60s, and he would read the conservative political magazines and the liberal political magazines, and he said, I don't know if I'm a conservative or a liberal, I just love the buzz that comes from how much they hate each other. (laughs) And it's the the actual argument itself. Uh, in, In the same way that the Apostle Paul warns about people who have an unhealthy craving for controversy. Uh, within the church. You're going to find those people. They're the kind of people who will uh, go around and say, you know, I I really like Russ Ramsey, but um, a lot of people don't. A lot of people have concerns. Is everything okay? Are you everything? You do that long enough, then you're going to end up with people saying, I really I really respect Russ Ramsey and really benefit from his preaching, but most people don't. People have a lot of concerns about him. And so you start then looking to find out what those things are. 
that is then applied to the larger world where what can give somebody a semblance and a feeling of vigor and meaning is a fight that is utterly inconsequential except for self-expression. I was, for most of my life until this year, a Southern Baptist. And early on in my ministry, I went to a Baptist associational meeting. And there were people who would get up at the microphone and just make crazy motions and object to things that you would think, come on, guy, do we have to fight and argue about this? And I was sitting next to my pastor, who I respected very much and who was completely unflappable. And I said, what is with this guy? And he said, this is somebody who, he's a bivocational pastor, he works at a job where he's mistreated uh, all day long and he has absolutely no power. He goes to his church, the deacons run it, and they treat him really, really poorly. He has no power. And when he comes to this microphone, he feels like he can be somebody. And this is how it shows up. That guy is all of us now because everyone has a way to amplify their voices and to get in recreational arguments and fights. And that can feel like meaning, it can feel like purpose, but it's not. So when the disillusionment comes, that actually is a gift. And when you have a group of people who are able to say, we have all sorts of differences, and yet we're united in Christ, you are picturing to the outside world something that contradicts all of that. I was in a church in Washington one time where two of the deacons distributing the elements at the Lord's Supper, one was a gun control activist working on gun control legislation, and one was a lobbyist for the National Rifle Association. They were fighting each other all week long, but then they'd come to church and pray with each other and distribute, uh, and distribute the Lord's Supper. That actually is the way it started. Jesus chose a tax collector, collaborator with the Roman Empire, and a zealot, rebel against the Roman Empire, into his initial band of 12 apostles. Why? My kingdom is not of this world. You must be born again. So when we think about these questions of politics, that is the primary issue. Now, I've gone on way too long. So do you want to... So I want to start off with um, a question that we got from the audience which kind of gets to the heart of, I think, what so many of us are wrestling with, which is how do we disagree in faith, in good faith? Um, the example that this person gave was a friend that participated on January 6th. Like, how do you even begin to have those conversations with someone who claims Christ, but 
reacts in a really different way than maybe you would? Well, I mean, one of the things you have to ask is what is my relationship to this person? Uh, in the same way that you would with, uh, with almost anything else. Mm -hmm. there, are going to be, um, there are going to be places where you have an influence in someone's life and you should speak into it at that point. To say, yeah, have you considered what it is that you're doing? There are going to be other times when you're in the kind of relationship where that's not going to be effective. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that you're saying that's not important. You're meaning I'm not the one who can take this on. Mm -hmm. Usually the way that that shows up is in terms of family relationships. Mm -hmm. So when I, I um, have taught over the last semester uh, on a university campus and the most often question, the most often asked question that I would get from young Christians is what do I do about my parents who have become so obsessed with politics that everything mm -hmm. is a fight about that? Mm -hmm. And it always is just kind of amusing to me because 10 years ago, the number one question I would have been uh, getting was from parents saying, what do I do about my college-age children because they're uh, wandering off? It's, it's now the complete reverse. Uh, and, and usually what I say is, you are not going to be able to disentangle all of that in an hour conversation. Didn't, it didn't happen that way, and it's not going to be disentangled that way. Usually what you need to do is to say, look, you and I don't see eye to eye on whatever. But I love you, and I want to have a relationship with you, and my relationship with you is more important than that. Can we just sort of not talk about that? And, and sometimes it helps to even have a little humor uh, where you have sort of a little code word to say when you're starting to get into the danger zone uh, there. And why? It's not because whatever those issues are aren't important. It's that that's not what that relationship is there for. And so I think that that's usually the best way to navigate it. That's really helpful. And I, a question came in while you were talking that I, I really love, and I think it'd be really helpful. So are there historical periods in that the church has been through before that we can look back to and say, here's a similar time when identity politics really took over sort of the church's witness in the world. And mm -hmm. how has the church gotten through those and how can we learn from those examples? There are, it's always happening and it's never happened. <laughs> uh, I'll say it, say it this way. Mm -hmm. In every era of the church, there is, the, um, there is the pressure to substitute whatever is temporal for what is eternal. That is always going to be the, place, uh, the case. And there's always, there are always going to be those people who are going to want to co-opt religion because if you have religion, then what you have is something that is unquestionable. So it's, it's not just that if you're not with me, you're wrong. It's if you're not with me, uh, you're an enemy of God. Mm -hmm. you know, so so that's, that's always the case. 
And the way that the church has gotten through that has been with a remnant of people who decided not to go that way. And uh, usually they were a marginalized uh, remnant of people in the short term and ended up being uh, vastly influential in the long run. That has always happened. What's not happened is the sort of social media atmosphere that we have right now. So I'll find myself talking to historians and sociologists and psychiatrists and everybody else. Uh, and one of the things I always ask is, have things always been this crazy and I was just too young to see it? Or are we in something different? And so far, every single one of them has said, no, we're in something different. This is, this is crazy. And uh, what uh, one of them, who is you know, one of the most uh, prominent social psychologists in the world, I respect his research, he said all of this is traced to the year 2011 when Facebook added the like button and Twitter uh, added the retweet function because what that did was to take social media to an entirely different place in terms of identity formation. Um, I, I don't know if he's exactly right about exactly where those fractures started, but that is a very different sort of world. And one of the problems, there's a, a great book by a guy named Jason Lanier, who was one of the Silicon Valley pioneers uh, designed a lot of virtual reality. And his argument is that what social media does is to put you into a sort of um, pack mode which, in which the individual dissolves into whatever the tribe is. Mm. And his argument is that's a really useful function to have. You need that. If, if there is a, uh, a fire in this room, uh, we don't need each of us individually trying to think about how the fire started. We need to all get out of the room. And if there's an invasion of the United States of America, what's going to happen? People are going to uh, become a pack for a while. That's a good function to have. It's not a good function to have all the time in the same way that an adrenal sense of alarm is a necessary thing to have. Somebody throws a snake uh, at your feet, uh, an adrenal sense of alarm is good. It is not good to constantly be in a state of adrenal alarm. So that is a very different reality that I don't think, uh, I don't think we've faced before, and I don't think we know exactly where that's headed. It's interesting, because as you were talking, it, it reminded me of... Um, a book I read in college called Bowling Alone by yeah. Robert Putnam, which mm -hmm. was about the, it's sort of about the, this was written pre-social media, and it was about the decline of social capital in the U.S. and how that was leading to a decline in democracy. So the less people are involved with their immediate communities and people who are different from them, the more tribalistic we will become, and that will ultimately lead to the, like, 
the dissolution of our democracy. And that was before social media. And now yeah. we, we layer social media on top of that, where people are finding these intense tribes. And it makes me wonder, like, what about, do you think that is what is creating sort of the uniqueness in this moment? Like yes. We, we've lost a lot of capital with each other. Yes, because what you end up with are the worst aspects of individualism, <laughs> loneliness, mm -hmm. isolation, and the worst aspects of collectivism, herd mentality, hive mind. Because, and why? Because you don't have that middle layer of uh, relationships that people have in a way that, as one person puts it, multiplies your identities. Mm. Uh, God has designed us to be people who operate in different sorts of ways. And so for, for most of American history, almost everybody was in that situation. You were a deacon at the church and a volunteer fireman and the custodian at the school. Uh, you had all of those different multiple identities. Now you're in a situation where what has happened even with Christianity is that you've had, you, we now have a different kind of cultural Christianity than what we had before. What we had before was, in order to be a good person, I need to be a part of a church. In order to be a regular person, I need to be a part of a church. That's no longer the case, but what it's been replaced with are people who don't have a church, don't go to church, haven't been to a church since vacation Bible school in the first Bush administration, but who are posting Christian memes on Facebook. And that, I mean, that, that takes the worst aspects of both of it, of both of those things, and you end up with lonely people who are finding community with people they don't know. That's a really toxic combination. Especially when we layer in the pandemic, right? Where yes. we, and I feel like that's really supercharged a lot of these trends that we've seen mm -hmm. in society. So one question that I've gotten asked in several different ways um, is how do we make it better, right? For our children, for the 10 years that you talked about, like the seeds that we're planting now are not about the conversations happening today. Mm -hmm. But how can the church lead the way and not even like the capital C global church, but us as Christians, with our kids, with our coworkers, with our, with our neighbors, how do, we, how do we start to change the narrative a little bit? Stop it. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is to say the only way to win this game is not to play it. Uh, there is no way to, um, uh, to have a, a five-step plan. Uh, instead, what you have to do is just to be conscious of uh, those realities around you and to, if you're a parent or if you have uh, responsibility over a child, start modeling for those children what it is to be a person who is not threatened. Mm. And, so, uh, and so finding a way to um, talk about people who have other viewpoints from you in a way that fairly describes that viewpoint and in a way that isn't threatened by it. Because mm -hmm. what happens when you don't, and we, we've seen this happening uh, you know, for the last 50 years in American Christian life, if what you present is a view of whoever the people who differ from you are as evil and stupid, mm 
and, and you give this caricature of people as supervillains in a lair, then your children are going to eventually meet those people and realize these people aren't stupid. These people aren't evil. So if my parents or my church, they were wrong about that, what else are they wrong about? Rather than preparing them to be the sort of people who understand and know the gospel's big enough to fight for itself. We're not threatened by uh, anything that's out there. And modeling what it means to be a person who isn't emotionally uh, charged around. And the most important thing is to have bigger things to love. Mm. And, and, and that's really the issue, is when you don't have people who are consumed with a bigger story, then they're going to get consumed with smaller stories. Mm. And those are, are usually just the stories that are around them. I was preaching in a church one time where someone came up after and said, this was, this was back in the... I don't know, early 2000s, the person came up and said, you know, I, I wish that you would, um, I wish you'd preach on judges sometime. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I preached on uh, from Judges 4 not long ago, and then eventually I realized he wasn't talking about the book of Judges, he was talking about the appointment of Supreme Court justices. Oh. <laughs> uh, and because... That's more important to him. It, it, it feels more immediate, which is why uh, it is much easier to see people who are passionately arguing with one another about vaccine mandates than the Trinity. You know, yeah. b because that seems more immediate and so it seems more real. Model something different and, and that's going to take a long time of, of slow organic work, not fast. So one of the questions that came in is, was, is there any time when preaching politics from the pulpit is acceptable? Well, it depends on what someone means by politics. Mm -hmm. if, if what you mean by politics is a kind of... Um, a partisan identity in which the church becomes an extension of uh, the government or some mm -hmm. faction within the government, then no. If, if what you mean, though, by politics is shaping and forming people's consciences to be able to make decisions, then yes. So look, for instance, the, the, where we see this in Scripture, I think the best, is in Luke 3, when John the Baptist is, um, is preaching repentance, you have tax collectors and soldiers who come up and say, they're repentant, they're coming to be baptized by John, and they say, what do we do now? Okay, what John does not do is to say, here is the new imperial Roman foreign policy to the soldiers, uh, nor does he say to the tax collectors, here is, uh, here is the tax policy for Caesar. What he says is, don't defraud people, don't extort people, carry out your, your lives with integrity. Now, is that political? Yeah, because he's shaping them to be people who are operating in public life. Is it an exercise of political authority and power? No. 
And so sometimes there are going to be times where it's, it's, difficult, to, um, it's difficult to know. Uh, but usually, I think, we as evangelical Christians kind of know how to do this when we're talking about personal morality and somehow lose the ability to do it when we're talking about corporate uh, justice. And so you, you, can, you can be in a situation where you are not shaping and forming people to make moral decisions, or you can be in a situation where you are an authoritarian or a, a, a legalist, uh, or communicating to people that working is going to be the, the way that they're reconciled to God. I mean, so we know how to navigate that with personal morality. And I think sometimes it helps when you're looking at an issue to sort of reframe it and say, how would I handle this if what I were dealing with is some personal moral question? And that's helpful, right? Because if, if Christ is the Lord of all things and all spheres of culture, politics, art, then then everything that is said from the pulpit is shaping us to be more Christ-like. And if we if we see Him as the Lord of every sphere, yes. then that helps us. But that does that does not mean, though, that the church is able to speak with authority as to how to carry those callings out. Mm-hmm. So, um, does. Uh, does the church shape and form an archaeologist to be a, a good archaeologist? Yes. Does the church ever intervene in that archaeology? Maybe. If you have an archaeologist who uh, is uh, one of your elders who announces that, you know, ancient Jerusalem never existed. That, that there were no Hittites. Okay, you're going to intervene in that, uh, not because you're, you're you know, a, an archaeological expert, but because this is a problem with the Bible. Mm-hmm. You, don't, uh, you don't instruct as a church a songwriter how to write songs. If you have somebody in your church who's writing a song, I'm so glad Jesus is dead and cocaine is great, <laughs> the church intervenes in that. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it's not then becoming an expert on songwriting, saying something's going wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the same thing applies yeah. to most of these. One more question that sort of uh, encompasses a number of texts that I got was is asking you to expand a little bit on disillusionment and helping us understand like what what you meant by that and how we keep, for example, like the next generation or even our generations from turning disillusionment into apathy and a lack of political involvement? Well, I think that the, the choice that you have is between disillusionment and cynicism. Because if your expectations are as high as certain people or groups would like them to be in, in the short run over what these, these movements can do for you, that's not going to do it. And eventually you end up with something that's more than just apathy. You end up with a sense of cynicism that then is applied to multiple different things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think disillusionment means you're coming to a point where you realize, okay, we're living in a world that's created by God and is good, and we're living in a world that is fallen. 
And that means that there are going to be flashes of goodness in all sorts of people and in all sorts of things. Most of the time, uh, people are coming to their ideas and their viewpoints uh, thinking that they're doing the right thing. And you're living in a fallen universe where everything is twistable and corruptible. Therefore, I am not going to invest my entire sense of identity in it. That's what disillusionment means. And so you're able to step back with a little bit of distance uh, to be able to see things that you genuinely care about, but that you're not putting your entire identity, you're not binding that up in it. Uh, that's what I think is important right now. That's really helpful. Um, so we've got a few minutes left, and I thought I'd open it up. Uh, if anyone has a question that they would personally like to ask Dr. Moore, we have time for one or two, and then we can, um, we'll close in prayer, and thank you so much for being here. But does anyone, anyone out there have a question they wanna ask? You can still text me if you'd prefer, but. About these issues. Some of my fellow brothers and sisters would um, claim that it can be stirring up division to mm -hmm. talk about those issues, mm -hmm. and that is something that I definitely don't want to do, and I would never want that to become, like, central. Like, that's not something that I would mm -hmm. want to divide on. I guess, how do you, how would you respond people like that and you want to to say no I, I believe that this, this is an important issue and I feel like I have the right to discuss it mm -hmm. without feeling like kind of the guilty manipulation yeah. of you you're, you're just causing division yeah well again Uh, and, mm -hmm. and see this, what that means is um, the question is never, is this divisive? Um, that's not the question. Because if um, when I talk to a guy who's cheating on his wife and says, um, stop cheating on your, and say, stop cheating on your wife, the response is going to be, why are you interfering in my business? It does not want that to happen. Uh, that can happen with anything. Uh, you, you are always going to have people who are going to say, uh, if you raise something that speaks to a conscience that we don't want to have spoken to, you're being divisive. So that doesn't necessarily say anything. Is it possible to be divisive in a way that is... Uh, dividing up the body of Christ in a way that the authority of Scripture doesn't do? Yeah. And I think the, the way that you figure that out is to not be on your own in that, but to have a larger context of people because one of the things that can easily happen is we only know ourselves and it's really easy to move from zeal to um, anathemas without really realizing where the different parties are coming from. 
So have people in your life who are able to sort of check you and check your motives uh, in that. But you're exactly right, that there's always going to be, the, and, and what happens is typically people just, just flip back and forth. So you can have people who love for the pastor to preach against abortion, and when he preaches against racial injustice, uh, they say, you're getting political and vice versa. You know, so you'll have the same, you have another congregation where there are people who love the pastor to preach about racial injustice, but the minute he mentions abortion, now, oh, you're getting political. And so that's always going to, to be there. So make sure that you're checking your own sort of perspective and motives in that. Yvonne? Yep. Yvonne had a question, yeah. Do you see parallels with what happened in Russian society with the current Muslim brothers? Yes, I mean, I, I mean, in uh, uh, parallels with Brothers Karamazov, you, yes, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, because you have, uh, you know, think about the uh, Grand Inquisitor parable, parable. You have the idea that if the church were simply to come in and give people bread and circuses. Uh, then you would be able to keep them in a way that a transcendent gospel can't, you know, to, to, to boil it down. Yes, that's always going to be the temptation. Then when you look at, I think that there are great parallels with what has happened in more recent Russian history, uh, where you know, dur during uh, the Soviet days, um, th there was the idea that the church should be clamped down on and then eventually it will go away. Uh, in the rise of authoritarianism in Russia now, you have a different tactic, which is to say, have a close, close alliance with the church where it is indistinguishable uh, what, is, what is nationalism and what is uh, Russian orthodoxy. And it becomes very, very confused and mixed together. And I think that you, you can see both of those things uh, actually taking place in American life right now. You have some people who think, well, you know, ultimately we're all going to be secularist atheists. And you just nudge people to get there a little bit quicker uh, to where they're going to get uh, anyway. Not a right view of human nature uh, or of political authority. And then you have other people who will say, there is something about religious zeal and religious identity that if we tie it to us is going to ensure that we succeed. That, that happens almost everywhere and it happens in authoritarian regimes with great regularity and often great short-term effectiveness until you have another generation who realizes well, the church is just another outpost of, <laughs> of the uh, civil authority. And so if I reject the civil authority, that means I also reject the church. Thank you so much for this incredibly rich evening. I'm going to pray and close us, but let's uh, say thank you to Dr. Moore very much for being here.
Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for the public witness of Dr. Moore and the thoughts and expertise that he brought us tonight. God, I pray that as a congregation that you would go before us as we continue to navigate these issues of faith and politics and identity, and that we would be an outpost for good discussion, for theological faithfulness, and for your kingdom to be flourishing here on earth. We thank you again for this evening. Please keep us all safe as we drive home in this rain. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.